everybody. Good morning. Um, the clergy team is here in the Gantt Chapel. We are recording on Wednesday morning, November the 29th, uh, the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. And today marks uh, seven weeks plus since October 7th. And obviously, we all know it's about the day-to-day -day release of hostages with the resultant uncertainty about what will all these day-by-day -day truces mean for the ultimate outcome of the war? Will Hamas end still in power, still armed, still presenting a menace to Israel? Um, will there be such a pressure on Israel to just enough already and turn this temporary ceasefire into a permanent ceasefire, which is not a ceasefire. It's going to be just another October 7th, aiming like a sort of Damocles on Israel. That's where we are in the Jewish world, that's where Israel is today, in this state of grave anxiety. And so what I wanted to do was to offer a text that could help us think about that. Uh, we're going to look at uh, something that is blissfully unemotional and blissfully not so deeply fraught, which is uh, a literary device, the envelope structure. Um, and we're going to look at how the Torah uses an envelope structure to present us with an apparent beginning, middle, and end of Jacob's story, which leaves us with the apparent impression of a clean and neat and tidy world. But is that really the world that Jacob inhabits at the end? And what we're going to look at is the pshat, that is, what is the Torah saying in its own time, in its own context, about this envelope structure? And then, of course, the drash, what does it mean? Us. So, without further ado, let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Before we look at the contents inside, I'll just sketch it out for us, which is the envelope structure begins in last week's uh, portion, um, which is Vayetze. Uh, that is the story of Jacob as a young man leaving home on the run, having stolen his brother Esau's blessing. Esau's saying, I'm going to kill him, and Jacob runs away. It, this envelope structure begins in Vayetze, and it ends in our portion this week, today's portion, if you're watching this on Shabbat, Vayishach. And here's the envelope, and then we'll look inside. At the beginning, the first part of the envelope is um, Jacob falls asleep puts his head on a mountaintop, puts his head on a rock, and he has this dream in which God appears to him and says, I will be with you, I will protect you, I will guard you, and I will not leave you until we come back to this place, and uh, I have protected you. And Jacob wakes up and says, oh my God, wow, God is here, and I didn't know it. And then he puts oil on a rock, and he turns that rock into a pillar of God, a, a sacred place, and he names it Bethel, the house of God. And the Torah notes that that had been called Luz previously. It was at a Canaanite name until God, until Jacob converted into Bethel. That's the first part of the envelope structure, by Yetzi, beginning of his journey. Twenty years later, 
a single man is now married. He's married to Rachel and to Leah and to Bilhah and to Zilpah. Twenty years later, this man who was just a young man on his own now has 11 sons. Benjamin, the youngest, is not yet born, and also Dina, his daughter. And he has 12 kids, four wives, and he survives his nerve-wracking encounter with Esau. And God says, okay, I was with you. Go back to Bethel and go back and have a moment. And we'll see that second half. And so what you have is Bethel, Bethel. God says, I will be with you, and I won't leave you until. And then in today's reading, to my knowledge, this is the only time this happens in Scripture that I'm aware of. God actually takes leave. God says, see you later. Bye. I did what I said I was going to do. I'm out of here. God says, sayonara. Uh, explicitly, I'm not aware of any, anywhere else it happens. And Jacob says, uh, this is going to be called Bethel. The Torah says it used to be called Luz. He does the whole oil on a rock trick. And it seems like um, envelope structure, Jacob is good. So let's just take a look at that to begin with. And then we're going to look at what happens to Jacob actually um, in it. So uh, the first part is, is well known. Um, this is on, I'll just read real quick. This is on pages um, one and two of the handout. But basically, uh, God says to him, remember, I'm with you. I'll protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob wakes up and says, surely the Lord is present in this place. I did not know it. And then early in the morning, I'm reading from Genesis 28:18. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on the top of it. He named that site Bethel, but previously the name of the city had been Luz, right? So you have this whole conjuries of God's promises and this place and the rock and the oil and the pillar. Okay, then 20 years come and go, and we'll pick up the story with um, page four of the handout, where the Torah is very intentional about, about this is an awful structure. Um, this is 20 years later. Page 4, Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and remain there and build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Vayishlach makes explicit reference to Vayeshev. Then, uh, page 212 or page 5 in the handout, Genesis 35, verse 6. Thus Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. There he built an altar and named the site El Bethel, for it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So it's kind of the envelope. And then, just at the then God blesses him. And then this piece ends with um, Genesis 35, verse 13. God parted from him at the spot where he had spoken to him. Because God says, sayonara. Um, I, I promised you I wasn't going to leave you until I got you back here. I got you back here. And so now God parts from him. God says goodbye. I'm on to the next. And verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar at the site where he had spoken to him, a pillar of stone, and he offered a libation on it and poured oil upon it. Jacob gave the site where God had spoken to him the name Bethel. So I just want to pause here. I just needed to briefly set that up. 
You have the beginning of the envelope. You have the end of the envelope. Bethel, Bethel, oil, oil, promises made, promises delivered. My dear colleagues, before we look at the pairs in the, on the, in the envelope, um, what do you think is going on here? Why is the Torah so self-consciously and so intentionally creating this envelope structure? Lord Nathan. <laughs> so I, I think part of this is, and I said this last week also, there's this whole trajectory through the early part of the Torah to um, demonstrate the, that the land belongs to the, to the people, to the Jewish people. And so um, Jacob, you know, renaming the place from Luz to Bethel, and then, and then it's really, and the, the second reading seems like it's the same story in the sense that he's actually setting a pillar, but there already had been a pillar there. Um, he's, you know, he's anointing it, shouldn't that, that already been done. Um, uh, all of that is a, it's a, it's a reaffirmation that, um, that it is actually this place uh, and that God is in this place and that the place belongs to, uh, to the Jewish people. So I think that that's part of the, um, part of the uh, trajectory. I also think that there's also another layer to that, which is part of the human condition, which is that, at, and I can speak for myself, that as we get older, um, we find great comfort in returning to the places that we did before. And, um, and reaffirming that, um, that the, the moments of our lives that take us from one place to another to another um, invariably um, end up all connected. Uh, and um, um, we, we find a, a good place to be in our life uh, through that connection. So this is about reaffirmation, about connection, about reconnection. At the end, Dan, after you read this, but before we look at the other factors, which are obviously part of this, but just looking at, at those bare facts of the envelope structure, promissory thoughts delivered, how do you feel about Jacob, or what do you think the Torah wants you to feel about Jacob's journey at the end of this week's portion by Yisrael? That, it, that it's been successful, um, and that's why he's able to return. Um, that's, that's, I think, part of, I think what's part of going on with right. it. A good news story. Uh, yeah, yeah. God, God came yeah. through. I think that Jacob is referring to kind of like another life chapter. You know, I think he's given us so many touchpoints in his through his life that that I you know he he shouldn't even be even considered a patriarch. Could be Moses or David. You know. Anyway, that's another dispute. Um, this idea of Sayonara, that God leaves him. Right. I don't understand why somebody who is able to trick his brother and escape that then God God will bless that person. So to me, there is always something that didn't like came to terms in terms of how God is going to bless somebody who does a bad thing. Right. And then at the end, to me, this is my my interpretation, is that God is not at all convinced, you know, completely convinced. He says, "I'm going to help this guy," but at the end, that's it. You know, I'm going to leave him alone because of the bad things that he did. I think there's something else going on here. Um, I don't think that it's God disappears. There's a time, there's, there's two envelopes that happen. There's the envelope of him returning to Bethel over and over, and there's also the envelope of Bethel becoming El Bethel, becoming Bethel again. And I think that Abraham, uh, Abraham Jacob, um, 
is someone who didn't have a strong faith in God and didn't believe in God. And then in the midst of his travails, he experiences God tied to a place. And when he experiences God tied to a particular place, he names that place House of God. And then he goes and experiences his life. And then he, when he feels a, a spiritual yearning, he returns to the physical place. And he calls that place the God of the place of God. And then he goes on and he comes back. And then he names it again Bethel. And God's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not a God of this one physical location. I'm a God that's all around you. I'm a God that, that transcends space and time. And I'm going to not be just here for you. I'm going to be in all places. And so God physically leaves him in that place. But I don't read it as God leaving him. I read it as he has been liberated from this idea that, that things only happen in a particular way in a particular place. Right. And he's no longer tied to that paradigm. Right. Also, his, his story continues as, right. as you pull out. And I, we could spend all class talking about the bad thing that Jacob did, but the fact is that Rebecca is given a prophecy at the beginning of her, like before her twins are even born, that this is how it's supposed to be. So there's a, there's a question about, you know, how do they go about getting to the place where they need to get, and how do we feel about this human lack of ability to live up to our godliness there. But, but it feels like God blessing what was God's intention all along may not be quite as problematic as we think. Dan, your um, your comment was so poignant about the idea of the comfort of the places that we have been before. And I wonder about that through the lens of not, you know, oh, these awful things have happened to him over his, his life and we're tying it up in a neat envelope, but maybe with this poignancy, Dan, that you're bringing especially when life has been hard, those places that have been sources of comfort and consolation to you can help mark your journey and help give you the strength to go on. The story is that Jacob doesn't go back on his own. God sends him back. That's what I'm saying. So so those places, right, when you come back, I'm just reading through Dan's lens that those places don't necessarily mean, oh, it's great, it's all it's all wrapped up. It yeah. might mean, hey, we need to check there, in again yeah. on who you were. There is, let me just um, pivot off of one point. Uh, Elisa, you said, doesn't affirm that God is leaving him. It could just be a feather of consideration that God is all around. But if you look at the story, again, we're looking at the Peshach. God says at the beginning, Lo ezvecha ad asher im asihi ad asher dibarti lach. I am not going to leave you, la'azov, to leave, I am Zion Bet, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's at the beginning, and then in this week's portion, uh, it's Vayal, may it love. He, he parts from him. But Vayal is right. also God went up. It's not that God left him. It's not Vayazov. It's Vayal, God, God raised God's okay. self. Okay. So, um, however we interpret it, there seems to be a clear self-referential quality to these two pieces of the story about Bethel. Um, and it does seem to suggest some kind of a connection, deep connection, reconnection, and fulfillment of promises. And the bottom line is, we know that Jacob is alive, he survives Esau, he's married multiple, and he's father multiple times, etc. Uh, it seems like it's a good story, and now he's back home in Canaan. Okay. Now, what I want to talk about is how, right along with this, 
um, two times beforehand and two times after the Amgad structure, there are significant threats to Jacob uh, or losses or pains. Um, and we'll just, I'll just outline it and then we'll look at it double quick. One is his daughter Dina is raped and Simon and Levi, his sons, perpetrate this um, revenge upon the people of Shechem. You know, the, 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 the guy who rapes Dina says, I love Dina, I want to marry her. And they say, fine, if you'll circumcise yourself and all the men in your town will circumcise themselves, you can have our sister for marriage. They do it. And then on day three, when they're really uh, disabled from circumcision pain, Simon and Levi come and slay them all. Um, and uh, Jacob's reaction betrays an ongoing uh, insecurity. We'll talk about that. Number two, um, Elisha's classic rabbinic exegesis sees it. He learns that his mother, Rebecca, has died. Um, then Rachel dies um, in childbirth to Benjamin. And then Reuben, his firstborn son, sleeps with Bilha, uh, his one of his wives. So you have continuing anxiety and uncertainty. You have death. You have death. And you have betrayal. And all of that is before and after the second half of the Amgad structure. And again, I want to talk about what could the Torah be saying here? What's its shot, its message? And then we'll have to apply it. So first, let's go to, um, we're not going to go do the entire Dina story because uh, that's uh, several classes into itself. I want to just focus on the end of the Dina story and what that says about Jacob's soul, his neshama at the end. So I'm gonna, we're going to just jump to the end of the story. This is page three of the handout. And this is the, four, the first of four assaults on Jacob at the end of his uh, Amgad structure. On the third day, when they were in pain, the men of Shechem were in pain, Simon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, brothers of Dina, took each his sword, came upon the city unmolested, and slew all the males. They put Hamor and the son Shechem to the sword, took Dina out of Shechem's house, and went away. The other sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and plundered the town because their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and asses, all that was inside the town and outside, all their wealth, all their children and their wives, all that was in the houses they took as captives and booty. Pia, super chilling to read this post-October 7th. But then, that's not the main point here. It's, again, it's its own class. But then it's the reaction, the coda. Jacob said to Simon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My men are few in number, so that if they unite against me and attack me, I and my house will be destroyed. But they answered, Should our sister be treated like a whore? That's the um, end of the story. So, uh, what does Jacob's reaction to the rape of his daughter and to the revenge of his sons, what does that say about Jacob and about the state of his soul? I would say, and this is a little bit with you, in that I experience his response is a little bit morally ambiguous, might be generous, but his concern is not about your behavior is abhorrent. What you did is immoral and evil and wrong. 
his response is like, see, you've caused a security situation for me. I'm concerned that they'll attack me in revenge for what you've done, and that's a new problem. Right. So he doesn't say a word about demons. Doesn't say demons. Right. So he's concerned. Right. So uh, to to use an anachronistic structure on it, he is at the base of the Nazareth hierarchy, right? Which is we're outnumbered here. There's a lot of Canaanites. There's a lot of parasites. There's not so many descendants of Jacob. Uh, it can mobilize them against us. If Hamas from the south and Hezbollah from the north both invade at the same time, we are screwed. We are dead. We are gone. And therefore, because he is at the lower end of Nazareth hierarchy, he can't be worried about the higher end of Nazareth hierarchy, what happened to his daughter, and he can't be worried about the higher end of Nazareth hierarchy, the moral quality or lack thereof of what they did. He's just worried about, will Hamas and Hezbollah jump on us at the same time? Will all the Canaanites and parasites jump on us? Yeah, I just want to say that feels problematic to call them Hamas and Hezbollah because from this text, we haven't had any evidence of violence towards us, and in fact, the opposite, we've been the aggressors, so it feels like, I just, I don't, I don't appreciate that. Well, okay, so let's collapse well, of terms. And yeah. I, I also think if you want to take this into modern times, it's much more, you know, what will Europe and America and, you know, all the other sort of the, the, the nations that are watching here what's going on, what will they think okay. about this local situation and the okay. way it has been brought out. Okay, let me just engage that. War too. Now, let, let me just engage that for a second. If you look on page nine of the handout, this is a line that we say literally every morning. Um, it's just so interesting that this line from Nehemiah chapter 9 made it into our daily liturgy. I mean, I just said this line, you know, a couple hours ago, and we say it every day and every holiday and every Shabbat. It's, it's a constant. This is from Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, you, God, made a covenant with him, Abraham, to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to his descendants, and you kept your promise, for you are just. Right? That, and that other is to say that every day we rehearse this line from Nehemiah chapter 9, that, that the land of Israel is never called Israel in the Bible. It's always called Canaan because it belongs to the seven Canaanite nations. And, the, and, and every day in our Kiddur, we list the seven Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, whose land was given to Abraham and his descendants. And I think what this text is saying is, you know, we might pray it every day, but if you're actually living it, you're Jacob, you're living it, and you're, la and you're in the land of the Girgashites and the, the Jebusites and the Canaanites, um, you do worry. The uh, he mentions specifically the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You do worry, will I be accepted, will I be overcome, etc. So I think that this whole, uh, we could agree to disagree about whether the reference to Hamas and Hezbollah is, is fair or not fair, but it's clear that Jacob seems to have an existential anxiety, an existential anxiety. I'm a small minority, and, a, and there's a lot of enemies, and if they actually mobilize, we're cooked. Right, but it's, it's on two levels, right? It's the, the first level of if they, if they mobilize against me, but there's even a level zero, which is a what will they think of what we have done? Right. What will what will the story being told out there be? Right. And you know, when you think of the the really important Israeli mission of how do you get the 
how do you not just say what has happened, but make sure that other people understand what has happened? I think, I, I think Jacob is saying something that's like, now we have a story that I can't, I, I can't defend. I can't defend, yeah. right. I can't I, defend this story. Right. Right. The point, the point to me is that, um, uh, and I'm with Aliza, where, where she said, um, you know, what is questionable here is that the two sons did. And that is exactly what Hamas did here. That is the point of the story. But the question is, why did it? Why, why to take such a hard revenge and do such horrible things? The question is, why? Right. And I wonder if there is something psychological in the way they were raised. Well, or there's a, or there's a deep anger game that, you know, their sister has just been violated and there's rage. Yes, but, yeah. I mean, yes. Or it's a referendum against mixing. It's a referendum against assimilating. It's saying that we are not, we're not going to become the people that are around us. And even the thought of, you know, Dina being with this person who expresses his love for her, um, that, that, that's the ambiguous story that led to the red tent. But, but the idea being problematic, we have in our Torah text that if a woman is raped, excuse me, problematic, but it is right there that one of the possibilities is that she marries her attacker. In this case, the brothers are like, we are not mixing, we are not going to blend in, we are going to fulfill God's promise, and the way to achieve that, to make sure that this doesn't happen, is to lash out in this way. So, right, so suffice it to say, in terms of our envelope question, and I think you raise really important questions, Eliza, there's a whole, we could do an entire class on a post-October 7th reading of the rape of Dina and the response of time and Israel and the sons of Israel. There's a, and, and how did we used to read this story before October 7th, and how does reading it after October 7th affect our reading and cause major moral vertigo, even more vertigo than we had? I think it's a, an important, really important question uh, for a separate conversation. But suffice it to say, in terms of our envelope structure, uh, yeah, God fulfilled God's promises to Jacob, and yeah, Jacob's alive, and he's got wives, and he's got kids, and he survived Esau, and he's got existential anxiety with the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the neighbors. Okay, second, the second tatter to his envelope, look on page five. This is such a random verse that our commentators uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out where this came from. At the end of the envelope structure, um, when he does the pillar at Bethel, the very next verse is Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakut. And this is not the Deborah of Debbie Friedman, Arise, Arise, Devorah. This is not Numbers, Judge, this is not Judges 4 and 5. This is a Deborah we don't know of at all. And the, the answer, according to Rashi, is, I'll just read this at the end, at the last page of the handout, number 10. Rashi's question is, who is... What's Alon, what's Bakut, and what is Deborah doing here? And Rashi's explanation, an Agadic explanation, is that there um, Jacob received tidings of another mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, another death. He was told that his mother had died. Alon in Greek means another, Bakut means tears. So that the Torah is telling us right after, uh, right after this uh, dedication of Bethel again, his mother dies. And then right after that, as long as we're on such cheery topics, um, on page 7, Rachel dies, his beloved wife. 
And I think if you were to put the death of Rebecca and the death of Rachel in the context of, let's say, our High Holiday Liturgy, me the Kiso, me love the Kiso from uh, Hinomi, me the Kiso, who comes to a timely end, who lives until they're 96 and passes away, me love the Kiso, who comes to an untimely end, who dies before their time. And so Jacob is immediately, after the rededication of Bethel, he confronts both me the Kiso, who lives and, un, you know, who fulfills their life and then dies as his mother, but still, when you lose your mother, even if she lives into her 90s, it's painful to lose your mother, period. And then he loses his wife, Milovikiso, right after that. So, colleagues, what, what do you make of that, these two deaths of his mother, of his wife, in quick succession, right after the rededication of the Temple of Bethel? So, I think we're skipping a little quickly past the rededication of the temple. And there's there's a comment here that that is sort of classic rabbinic view of why he's there. Why does he need to go back to that moment um, and and re-engage that place again? And if you look uh, here under the Bethel tradition, one of the comments is Jacob is reminded that he has not yet fulfilled the vow made at Bethel. And sort of classic rabbinic commentaries come and say that Jacob has to do a soul searching after his sons do this horrible deed. And he has to say, like, what did I, as a parent, what did I as a Jew and as a human not do right yet? What did I do wrong? And he's, what did I do? Like, what have I not lived up to? And the vow, that sort of classic vow that he had made long ago was, God is going to be my God. God's going to be front and center. It's not necessarily going to be even just about my material um, success or the, the possibility of fulfilling my, um, my dreams. It's about fulfilling my destiny. And my destiny is to be committed to God. And, and that moment at that altar is a recommitment to God and to the principles that he had beforehand and perhaps a sense of I haven't yet I haven't yet done the thing right and so when he then encounters the passing of his mother and the passing of his beloved wife coming forward I think it's in the context of some some deep pain and soul searching that he's going through here that there's still there's still this commitment to his spirituality, to his faith, to his connection with God. Has Dafka, I know you framed it as it's being fulfilled. Like, this is the end. This is the story. He's recommitting the end, and therefore the end. But in fact, the opposite, that he's still struggling and trying to live up. And I, there's a beautiful commentary about why, do, why does Jacob argue with his dying wife about the name that, they give, that she gives his son? And, um, and there's this beautiful idea that the reason that he argues with her is because her, her name of him had to do with grief and loss and, and an end of a story. Benoni. Correct. Benoni. And, he, and he instead says no. Like what we have lived and what we have done has mattered towards something not just in the past, but something that's going to happen in the future. I think that's and the that's interpretation of the text of the Bishalist is 
little bit speaking of what Alisa said before about um, that Jacob perhaps, you know, doesn't have completely faith. I mean, he's, he's a person with doubts about. And, you know, Wes, you said Lovic is so. Normally when somebody passes away and it's a young person, first thing we do, at least Jews, is, is to say, why, God? Why is you do this? I mean, are you testing me? And I think it has to do with, you know, in, in moments like this, where is our faith? There's also another rabbinic interpretation I think is important here. This, in some ways, to me, reads like a story against assimilation, a story about the Canaanites. Because one of the rabbinic reads is that the women steal all the idols from Levan. And when Levan accosts them on the road and says, you've taken my gods, you've taken my gods, Jacob's like, what are you talking about? I'm not, I didn't take your gods. No one, strike down, strike dead whoever took your, your gods not knowing that Rachel is the one who has the gods. And so right before this, it says, rid yourself of the alien gods in your midst, purify yourself. He's freaked out. And it's his own right, inability to see the, what's going on, his own inability to see his family that causes this death. So he has, he's both morally ambiguous and unable to really see up from down and also sort of implicated in all of these acts of violences because of his determination to be separate because of his unclarity. And I think that, that comes through here in an important way. And it's, I think, important for us to remember because when we become dogmatic and black and white, that's where we're most at risk of being morally ambiguous and, at worst, morally bankrupt. Well, let me then uh, just push the point and ask you about the fourth assault on Jacob. We've talked about the rape of Dina, the revenge of Simon and Levi, and his dubious, morally dubious response the death of his mother in her full years, the death of his wife before her time. And then the last one is, while Israel stayed in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. His firstborn son slept with his third wife, and Israel found out. Um, where does that fit into your reading? I think it's really important, again, not what? Pelagesh. His well, concubine, and I think that just no, 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 but no, but in fairness, in Genesis 37 is explicit and calls Bilhah and Zilpah his wives, his four wives. Interchangeably, they go back and forth, and I think that's really important because when it serves Jacob, he treats them like wives, and when it serves him not to, he doesn't. And in this moment, he's not treated that way, and I think the morally ambiguous way he relates to the women in his life models for his children how to respond and how to relate and how to treat these women, and I think. I think it's possible to read also Jacob into the story. It's like he has presented a morally problematic way of responding to these women and treating them in, in ways that are not appropriate, and that's what his son does. But, but, but also, but also we have like to father, like son. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the scene where Isa wants to make peace with him happened before this. Yes. Right? And what is the, you, you made a commentary last week on the, on the dinner about this, that He's afraid that Isa is going to come to kill him. So what does Jacob do? He puts in front his wife and children. Right. He hides. All right? So kids learn from our behavior. And I'm wondering if all these reactions of, of, their, of their kids are related to the bad parenting. So, so let me step back and ask you, as our, as our class comes to an end, what is the Peshat message of of the envelope structure, because you have dedication, dedication, Bethel, Bethel, promises made, promises delivered, and then in the context of promises delivered, and whether God abandons Jacob as a sayonara or lifts up, however you want to interpret that, um, 
what is clear is that his life from then on is continues to be a hot mess. You know, he's got the Diener business. He's got the death of his mother and of his wife. He's got Ruben sleeping with his concubine slash wife. And that doesn't even begin to begin to talk about the end of his life, which is Joseph and how he, he mourns for his favorite son, Joseph. So um, what is the Torah telling us about the connection between promises made and promises delivered and all this Bethel business and the rest of the hot mess of Jacob's life? What's the moral of the story? I, I think it's not promises made and promises delivered. I think it's promises made, promises needed to be recommitted to, and that and that that's an ongoing story for all of our lives. We need to continually commit and recommit. Every morning you need to wake up and you need to try again. I would also say I think this is an important reminder for us that even when life is a hot mess, it's not that God is absent and it's not that God's promises aren't being fulfilled. It's things are messy sometimes and that doesn't mean God isn't there. That just means life is messy. Well, I think also part of it is um, there's a, everything is in a cycle and the cycle of Jacob's relationship with God, you, you know, here in this last text we just like, you know, it's just like this Yisrael, not Yaakov. So he's, his identity is never really settled. And so I think part of that also is that God, God's relationship with, with, with Yisrael and Yaakov fluctuates. So God's presence is supposed to be just sort of maybe there but not seen. You know, God leaves, he, he goes up, but it's not seen. Um, that, that part of his envelope structure is the idea that we begin and end in certain ways, but but we're never really beginning or we're never really ending. It's just it's just continuing continuing cycle um, in which we have presence and non-presence, moral ambiguity followed by moral um, actions that are that are better, and it just it just continues to um, continue to swirl, and that's really part of what what life is all about. What about you, Rick? Yeah, so I read this, uh, yes to all that you say, but I read this particular, the reason this spoke to me so much is I'm trying to wrap my head around Israel and Israel's place now. And to me, this whole hot mess of Jacob is really responsible. You know, this past year was all about Israel except for Uzziah. And, uh, and reading Danny Gordis' book, Israel, A Concise History, and the Miracle of Israel. And I remember being in Israel in April, which seems like a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, a millennia ago. And uh, I remember the first day we got an official briefing from uh, the main newscaster of Israel, who talked about Israel's never been stronger, never been more uh, potent, and never been more invincible than now. This was April, and then October 7th. And I'm trying to figure out, and now, it's not just a line that Israel is fighting for its life. Israel is really fighting for its life. And if the temporary ceasefires become real pressure to a permanent ceasefire, and if the White House and the American government uh, forces Israel into a ceasefire and doesn't give Israel the arms, and doesn't give Israel the munitions, and doesn't give Israel the aid, and we can't finish the job, then Israel's not going to be Israel. Because, you know, Mika Goodman's test is... Would you, you know, would you spend Pesach at Shtei Rosh? Would you take Lorena and my kid David 
to go to Cairo? Would you take Solomon and Edith and go to Cairo? And if your answer to that question is Skate Road, are you kidding? There's no way I would risk Edith at Skate Road. There's no way I would risk my love life at Skate Road. If that's how you feel, then how can we ask Israeli to do that? And if there's just a temporary ceasefire that becomes an extended ceasefire, no way you guys are going to Skate Road. Okay. Which means that no way anybody's comfortable going to Skate Road to take us. Mm-hmm. Which means that the south of Israel is uninhabitable. And then if Hezbollah does that to the north, so all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh my God, how did Israel in its 76th year, promises made, promises delivered in April, you know, such a strong show of invincibility, by November, it's so tenuous. It's so tenuous. And what struck me about this reading is it connects to that. Promises made, promises delivered after 2,000 years, the miracle of Israel. After 2,000 years, Israel is 75. And just a few months later, to blink of an eye later, like hanging on by a thread. Hanging on by a thread. And so, to me, this uh, speaks to, uh, this, this envelope structure speaks to Israel. And what I think, what I have learned from your comments is it's a message of, of this double envelope structure and the hot mess, is that Jacob's never done reinventing himself. He needs to recreate himself. We all need to recreate ourselves. And I think that also connects with Israel. You know, Micha Goodman, the, the best thing I have heard anybody say about, about October 7th and the aftermath is when we get from some other side of this, when we win the war, Israel's going to have to be recreated again. And, and Micha said, I got so many things wrong, and everybody got so many things wrong. And Israel is going to need 2,000. The founding of 1948, where David Ben-Gurion was the founder, and the founding in 2020, whatever it will be, who knows when this war will end. And we need to begin again and to recreate ourselves. So it's true of Jacob, and it's true of all of us. It's true of our beloved Eretz Israel. As long as we're alive, we're never done. We are always in need of recreation. Turns out there's never a completed envelope. Shabbat Shalom.